Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com slash tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. The weather is more like spring, and that means there's this great smell in the air. It's the smell of new comics. Hello everyone, I'm Seth Singleton. I'm your host today for this edition of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 10. Can you believe we made it? I can. I'm just getting started. And to kick things off for my top five books this week from DC Comics... I'm going to run away with an early one, Justice League Dark, number 11. Now, if you've been keeping up, this one has been on my radar, and there's a few reasons why. But first, about what's going on. Essentially, magic, just like everything else since the source wall has been broken, is going insane. And the effect has brought in so many different challenges, whether it's the other kind or the more recent development of the Lords of Order. Essentially, Justice League Dark is facing down one of the earliest masters of magic, and in order to find a way around it, they're going to have to go through some less than savory means. So why I picked it? Simply put, I can't put it down. Justice League Dark is one of those things that was recommended to me, and the moment I had the chance to review the first volume, I knew it was going to be something I would keep reading simply because of how great it is. I'd like to give a little shout out to some of the staff from DC Comics News who recommended it to me. Uh, everybody from Ari Barr to uh, Steve J. Ray, guys, you're awesome. And as far as what I love and my favorites this time around, it's going to have to be the story elements that deal with Mordrew. You're going to the dark side in order to get some help, and Mordrew offers it, but only after exerting his power and pointing out that he doesn't really feel like this is something he should be even deigned to entertain. His treatment of Wonder Woman is quite ugly, and Zatanna is really limited in her ability as a practicer of magic. And it's difficult to watch these two very powerful, very capable women in this situation, but it's also why it makes their sacrifice and the reward they receive from Mordrew so valuable. Now, my other favorite story element has to do with the team that has escaped from Mira, which is now destroyed, and the challenges that are facing the citizens now that they've left their homeworld. It's really heartrending to see the effects that it takes on the people, and without giving any spoilers, the hardest hit are Bobo and Blue Devil. And the struggle is actually realized in a very painful way when the attempt to leave reveals that the Sword of the Nightmaster 
is actually now powerless because its power was based on the kingdom of Mira, which has now been destroyed. And that's just a very difficult thing for these characters to have to face off against. However, without giving too much away, the opportunity for Justice League Dark to now possibly take on a darker side in order to fight the Lords of Order is a great looking forward for, well, I almost said episode, but issue number 11. On the art side, really gorgeous stuff here. I mean, phenomenal. The final page is one I can't do justice to simply because it's the Justice League and the artists doing it are so much better than I can try. However, let me just say, you'll want to pay attention to the way Wonder Woman and Zatanna look because it's just really impressive. Now, it's not like they saved all the good stuff for the end. The appearance of Mordru is really gorgeous. He's sinister, powerful, and his appearance as this sort of structure living within the halls of the Justice League, it, it's an impressive display and an example of how, you know, some of the most deadly things, they, they exist underneath us and right in the shadows or out of the corner of our eye. On the negative side, well, nothing's perfect. And actually, on the storytelling side, my biggest challenge is simply the way that the characters are struggling with the issues that are going on in ways that feel very real and honest, and yet also feel like they're just contained within the role of the story. And by that, I mean, I would almost expect the reaction that they're giving, and I would almost anticipate it would go further than what I'm seeing, and yet for the needs of the story, it can't, because they have to keep pressing on in order for the story to move forward. That was really my only issue on the story side. Now, on the least favorite on the art side, I actually didn't love the variant cover. It's not bad. It's just not amazing. I've seen it done so well. Um, there is just something about the shading and the tone. And then also there's a big splash page on 11, which is when Justice League Dark is coming out to fight. And there were just some elements that, that took me away. Uh, Swamp Thing was actually the one part where I just I kind of looked at him and said, yeah, he's Swamp Thing, but he's really not. But other than that, this was a great issue, a great read. Justice League Dark continuing to hold my interest and me loving them for doing it. And that's why I had to give this one a solid 4.5. I'm waiting to hear your score. But don't keep us waiting too long. Next episode is coming out sooner than you think. Now before we get to issue number two of my top five picks for the DC Comics new spinner rack. And that one is going to be Freedom Fighters number six. Freedom Fighters is actually a, uh, a maxi run, so it's a 12-issue run, and essentially it's telling the story of what life's like on Earth-X, where the Razzis, a variation on the Nazi party, have conquered Earth, and this small band of fighters have been striking back in an attempt to bring back the spirit of Uncle Sam, who has always been the leader of the Freedom Fighters, and the only one who can help them sort of gain a balance of power against this overreaching tyrannical empire known as the Ratsies. Why I like it. I love the Freedom Fighters. I've mentioned this when I've uh, had this one on before for the Spinner Rack. I, I really think that they, they have a passion and a desire that can only come from those who are always fighting an almost unwinnable battle. And really, that's what makes it so easy for me to move right into my favorites on the story side, which is now we get a chance to see how the team after all their hard work, is doing now that they finally got Uncle Sam back. Of course, 
he's not 100% because neither is the spirit that lives within him. America's been broken a bit since it was conquered by the Ratsies. And Uncle Sam, while he's back, took a lot of effort to get him here, and it's going to take a lot more effort for him to be strong enough to help them in the fight. And the team is thinking about this when they see Sam just kind of lying on a hospital bed. And after they've been staring for a while, my favorite part is Uncle Sam saying, how long y'all going to stand there and stare? The rest of the team introduces themselves and provides a bit of a backstory regarding what's been happening since Uncle Sam was last around and what kind of odds they're facing, which actually don't look great because right at this moment, Overman, who was revealed to still be alive, a little bit damaged, and under the control of the Ratsies, have been sent out to find them. And he finds them, smashes things up, rightfully so, and in doing so, sends the team on a scatter. Now, it's not that he comes out of this completely unscathed. After he smacks around just about everybody, the human bomb really starts laying into him. And at this moment, you actually can see that his skin is just a covering, not for bones and muscle, but for machinery. He's a cyborg, which leads to a great revelation when it comes to the story of Overman, and that is that he left after a horrible loss, which was uh, the Supergirl um, alternate, who was his kind of, I believe it was Overgirl, I could be saying this incorrectly, and she was lost in a tragic battle, and he left, and when Overman left, the Razzis had to find a way to keep things going. Hence, a cybernetic fusion of Kryptonian steel and whatever genetic DNA they still had lying around. On the art side, some really beautiful stuff here. I mean, it starts out with just this great image of Overman on page three, just looking so powerful and menacing and, I mean, scary, let's be honest, just powerful. Think of all the power of Superman, but contained behind the sort of zealotry that goes with the Razzis. Uh, that's met by his appearance with the team when he seriously shakes things up and makes it look really bad. But when he does, it's just a beautiful splash, boom, and then his dark menacing shadow with the glaring red eyes and the team in terror. And then of course, uh, on the art side, I really love the uh, flashbacks to the history that led to um, his loss and his eventual departure, and also how Essentially, when they're fighting, there's two other great moments, one of which when the human bomb really lays into Overman, and it's this beautiful, big, bright, yellow, white explosion of color. And then after it, the next splash page, which is Overman on fire, skin and stuff melting away, evil cybernetic shell sort of peeking out from underneath. Really gorgeous stuff. Now, of course, I always have to point out whether or not I found any parts that were kind of lacking. And uh, on the story side, I didn't struggle with anything here. I really enjoyed mo most of what was going on. It fit the narrative. I liked the development of, uh, of Overman being this sort of monstrosity, literally, this man-machine, because of what had happened to the original. Um, on the art side, I thought everything looked great. You know, I kind of felt like there was a bit of an issue with the detail when they move into uh, the later scenes after the team escapes Overman. And they're in a shadowy area, and it just kind of felt like some of the details were dimmed. I know it was supposed to be an effect of the lighting. 
um, and the fact that they were in the dark. But it, there was something detracting from it that was just a little bit, you know, off-putting. But overall, Freedom Fighters nailing it home for me, man. This great development. I, I'm knocking this book to a solid five for my second pick on the spinner rack. Of course, my score being a five doesn't mean anything until I really know what your score is, too. Because that's when we can compare. And that's something fun I'm going to talk to you about at the end of this episode. Because it's a great thing to think about when it's people talking about comics. But before we can get to that, we got to get to my third pick. And that third pick is going to be Martian Manhunter number five. Um, what's going on? Essentially... The entire series is another 12-issue maxi. Maybe I'm just a sucker for these things. Maybe I love the challenge and the opportunity to tell a complete story in 12 issues. I can't say for sure. What I can make sure to do is to tell you what's going on, and that's that in Martian Manhunter so far. We've been experiencing John Jones as this, well, Earth detective, who is also remembering his time when he was on Mars, as a manhunter and part of a investigative force and how the bounce between those two is actually leading to a story that began in his past and now is facing him in his future. Last time around, John had to go into the mind of an iguana in order to understand who a killer was. And when he did, he realized that it was an evil that had followed him from Mars and one that he was completely blindsided by because it was so much more powerful than him. Why I like it. I love this book because I love, one, Martian Manhunter. I love Jean Jean's. I love John Jones. I love everything about the character. Um, I've always just thought he was really compelling and just a, a great example of what it's like for anybody who's ever felt like an outsider who tries to belong but also knows the things that make them different are the things that make them unique and valuable. When it comes to the story side, Boy, I just love this challenge of John just trying to understand uh, not only what he's facing, which is this great evil, but how it's come from his past. And we get a chance to see that actually it's a criminal who had been punished on Mars. And that punishment is that they get locked into this form. It's a single form. It's very ugly and red to show their shame. And they're trapped there forever and ever. Now, most of the others who go through this, as this menacing creature points out, and as he mentions, he was, you know, essentially one of the victims of people like John Johns. He, or it, describes how others succumbed to their prison while he, it, turned, she, turned the prison into an opportunity to strengthen the mind and become so much more powerful mentally and with all of the Martian skills that come with that. And that's why it's able to project the fear of Ronmere's curse on John and and sort of show this like threat of boils and, and damage. And John swears that he's, you know, right there in front of the guy until he's in a station house being asked by another detective if he's okay. And he understands that the power that he was facing not only the boils, but the fear of being set on fire was all done by a creature so powerful that he never even realized that he was in one place, even though he felt like he was in another. On the art side, this is one of the other things I love about this book. It really reminds me of this great book from the 90s called Green Lantern Mosaic with Jon Stewart. And it's the really 
beautiful blend of the reds and greens. It starts with this gorgeous, I mean, just gorgeous variant cover that I absolutely love, the twisting emotions in the faces, and then right through the rest of the issue, just this sort of gorgeous tint of orange, green, and red, and the way everything sort of has these hues. It's almost like it's smoky, or it's, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, when it comes to the negative side, well, on the story part, you know, I kind of felt like punishing John the way it was done sort of dragged things out a little bit. And I enjoy the idea of his partner, who's a character that stands on her own, is independent, learned to live on her own. And yet it it's not really matching up for me yet in a way that feels like it's as valuable as it could be. I feel like it's building towards something, but until it gets there... I'm still waiting for it. And as much as I enjoy waiting for it, I wouldn't mind getting a better sense of what it is I'm waiting for. Clearly, these people need each other. But how and to what degree and how much they'll allow, of course, it seems that we're just building to. And if we're only five issues into 12, we got seven more for those things to happen. On the art side, I really loved everything about this issue. I struggle to find any complaints or problems with it. I thought everything about it was really just quite lovely. The only part that seems a bit over the top is the uh, partner who at times, and maybe this is unfair, appears a little bit like Johnny Bravo with the giant blonde hair and the sort of overdone um, confidence, arrogance, sexuality. But I also enjoy the fact that there's no sort of shrinking from it. It's completely embraced. So maybe that's a negative, maybe not. Get back to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. However, mine are that Martian A. Manhunter is still this amazing, beautiful, in many ways, perfect book that's a solid five on my score sheet. Your score sheet is something I can't wait for us to talk about when you tag me at DC Comics News. But first, let me move into these last two, because what's the point of one through three if we don't get to four and five? And my fourth book around is Detective Comics number 1004. Now, since Detective Comics number 1000, we've begun the arc of the Arkham Knight. And over the last three issues, the Arkham Knight has really attempted to take on everyone in the Bat family. First Batman himself, and then later Damien, and with mixed results. The revelations that have come with it are that the Arkham Knight is essentially uh, the daughter of someone who worked at Arkham Asylum, and she's a woman with a mission and a very clear idea of strength and discipline and how those things are going to be the keys to taking down Batman, at least in her eyes. Now, why I like it, uh, essentially, Detective Comics has been pushing ahead, not resting on its laurels. And by introducing this great villain, who is my understanding came from not only the video game, but also this great idea of what's a, you know, an opposite version of Batman look like, well, that's always a great attempt. And in this one, we get the backstory that um, really moves perfectly into my favorite parts of this story. And that has to do with how does the Arkham Knight become who she is? Well, simply she lived at Arkham Asylum after her mother was killed by a battering. Now, it wasn't thrown by Batman, but what I find interesting is that this symbol of the bat is what makes her who she is, the Arkham Knight. And that's so much about the mythos of Batman. When he was in the midst of trying to understand who he was going to become, it was the appearance of a bat 
that led to his decision that he would become this creature of fear. Whereas for the Arkham Knight, she instead understands this image as being the thing that she must strike down. It's the great evil that destroyed her mother. And her bond with prisoners at Arkham has made her essentially see them in a positive light and Batman as the evil darkness that has come in to destroy the world where she lived. On the art side, I really enjoyed actually the tone of the flashbacks. They, they reminded me of some of the comic stylings that I remember from the late 80s and early 90s when it came to Batman. And it made them feel like this great moment of nostalgia, this moment to sort of look back. And in doing so, it created this really great lighting context and filter for the Arkham Knight to view all of these villains in a, in a glowing sort of nurturing experience or family sort of environment and through that the understanding of her mentality becomes a little bit better of course it's interesting that <laughs> when it's brought up that she sees batman as this you know terrible evil as this curse on gotham that you know damien responds haven't we all at some point to which batman only gives him a look <laughs> and damien has to sort of Ha! So, one, that's one of my favorite moments when it comes to the art side because of how there's that panel of Damien speaking, the quiet panel of the beat of Batman just looking at him, and the follow-up panel with the expression of, oh, I really stepped in it on Damien's face. When it comes to negative sides, of course, there are some issues I have. I haven't been in love with the sort of over-elongated ears and features of Batman's face. Sometime around 1001, it started for me, and it's something I, I haven't really loved. But um, it's something I'm, I'm getting around. Um, when it comes to the story side, overall, I felt like this was a great way to sort of get a foundation set up for Astrid, the Arkham Knight, and to understand where she's coming from and why she's doing what she's doing. And I didn't feel like it was too overdone, too unnecessary. And uh, going back to the negative art side, really, my only issues were the ones that I mentioned. Uh, overall, I felt like this was, uh, you know, really well done, and I thought that the art matched with what the story was trying to show me. And who knows? Maybe I'll just get over the whole Batman New Year's elongated feature things. It's funny. It's it's something I mentioned before, but every time I look at it, it feels like it's just a sort of caricature by a uh, plastic man. Who knows? Maybe I'm just looking at it from a different angle. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Detective Comics number 1004 is a solid four in my book. The reason why I picked it for number four for this episode of The Spinner Rack and it's a great setup to move right into issue, or I'm sorry, not issue, but book number five. And this time around, that book is going to be Books of Magic number eight, issue number eight. See, I can figure out issue an episode sometimes. Just give me a little bit. What's been going on? Boy, there's a lot been going on. Essentially, Tim and Dr. Rose are on the run. And it's brought them to the land of fairy, where essentially you're encouraged not to leave and leaving usually entails a price. Oh, and in order to leave, you have to ask. Now, why are they on the run? It's kind of a long story, but essentially, Tim has done some bad things, and he's really a conflicted character who could be capable of some powerful evil because of the power that he can access. That 
is something that comes to a head and it actually makes for my favorites on the story side and a really great follow-up to Batman because what I thought was really great about this issue was the way that it made memory such a powerful component. The idea here being that Tim has lost parts of his memory and in order to get them all back, one, not only does he have to ask for it, but two, he's already been given hints like a bleeding forest that there are some dark corners in his past. When he does get his memories back, it's powerful and shocking, and he really struggles with it. And unfortunately, Dr. Rose, who's been accompanying him, doesn't have much of an answer for how to deal with it, or even if he's making the right choice. On my favorites for the art side, well, Books of Magic is really just quite lovely. The Sandman universe always offers up this dreamy, ethereal experience, and I felt that from the first page and through the rest of this very real-feeling fairy world. I also like the idea that we've also got a real-world story going on, which is Chief Inspector Patel, who's investigating Tim's disappearance, his not being at school, and the deaths that have occurred since his disappearance, and the seemingly unwilling unwittingness of Tim's father. Now, when it comes to the art side, some absolutely gorgeous things available here. Uh, you know, some things that really make me happy. You know, the worlds feel so concrete when you're in the fairyland, and then when you move into the real world, everything feels just as concrete and almost a little bit more stark by comparison. And I really love that about the uh, the art side. But um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some issues that came up for me on the story side. While I understand that there's a darkness to Tim and that everyone's sort of worried about what's going to happen once he understands what that darkness is, it also seems as though in many ways magic is always trying to prevent the inevitable and suffering in the process. And <laughs> it's really difficult to, you know, watch this story fumble through that, but then also to realize that if I was in that same situation... Who am I really to say that I would handle it better? On the art side, it, really hard to you know pinpoint any major issues when it comes to how this one is presented, simply because of the things that make fantasy so great. They they bend the idea of what reality should be doing or could be doing or anything along those lines. So when there is a disconnect in the art especially in a dreamy sort of environment like this. It feels real. It feels honest. It feels like uh, something that's supposed to be there. And for me, everything in this book art-wise felt like it was supposed to be there. I loved Books of Magic number eight because it not only told the story of memory, but it also offered a great visual representation of it. And uh, that's the reason that I picked Books of Magic number eight as my fifth book for this edition of the DC Comics News spinner rack and it's why i gave it a solid score of four your score it's one i'm looking forward to hearing and i hope you share it with us soon please remember to do so with the at dc comics news tag now you can do that on social media facebook twitter instagram tumblr even youtube just make your comment use a video tag us with writing or a picture put the at symbol DCCOMICS, N E W S, 
all one word, DC Comics News, and we'll make sure to get back to you because we really want to hear what you have to say. I know I do. When it comes to following us, this podcast and the DC Comics News podcast, we're everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, even Google Play. So head over, if you haven't already, subscribe, tell a friend, and then rate and review. I think we're five stars. If you think differently, convince me otherwise, and I promise I'll listen. This has been episode number 10 of the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and I really appreciate you guys coming in, sticking around, listening, and sharing your comments. Join us next time for episode number 11 when I pick my top five books from DC Comics next week, just like every week. Thanks again, folks. Catch you next time.